We want to take a second to thank you for supporting Womance by listening to our podcast. One great way that you can continue supporting us, including those listens, is hitting subscribe, telling a friend, leaving a review. That stuff all really matters. Sharing it on your personal social media is another great way to spread the word about Womance. And another option for supporting us, if we may be so bold, is to recommend going to our Patreon, where you can donate as little as a dollar a month to help us spread the word of woe. If you want to contribute more than a dollar a month, which obviously no pressure, whatever you've got, we are so appreciative to have, but we have awesome gifts for you. If you want a hand-addressed letter from Morgan and Isabeau, maybe with some special woe stickers, other merch, just uh, visit our Patreon. We are Womance on Patreon, or is it patreon.com forward slash Womance? We would be very proud to call you one of our patrons. I'm Isabel. And I'm Morgan. And this is Romance. A podcast about romance novels. About being lost in space. About operating system updates. About polytechnic jumpsuits. About the Cold War. About watching somebody run on a treadmill so they don't lose too much muscle mass. About old-fashioned radios. About portholes. About screen time. About snuggles. But most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. ourselves. Today, we are going to be discussing The Darkness Outside Us by by Elliot Schrafer. Isabel, before we get into the back of the book, this was, um, you chose this book. What, how did you know it existed? It was sent to me. It was sent to you by who? Uh, My sister-in-law. She sent me a care package uh, full on 10 months ago. And she said that babies get all the attention when you have them. So here's something that I think you will enjoy. And it's taken me this long to get around to it. And I read the first 25 pages and I knew that I was going to want to talk about it with you. And it kind of has been fitting in our weird like theme of Adam Driver fic out in the wild, um, based solely on the cover of this. I wouldn't say that the character functions like a Adam Driver shell, um, but the the cover artist certainly had some old Tumblr posts of Adam Driver up when they were making this cover, I think. Well, okay, so two things. First, is this the same care package that the dead romantics arrived in? Yes. Okay. And then follow-up question I mean like not really a question but mm-hmm. I think this cover art is very like uh, reminiscent of the direction that romance novel cover art is currently moving in which is where they're still it's like going from the like little faceless cartoon raceless yeah cartoon covers 
uh, to this like more decorative, more detailed uh, style. Mm-hmm. That is largely now influenced by AI. I didn't realize romance novelists, um, especially in the Kindle Unlimited space, are using AI art generators to make their covers. And their covers have gotten a thousand percent better in the last like 20 months. But they're also citing themselves as the artist. Oh, yikes. I didn't realize they were doing that. That's not good. Don't do that. You're not an AI. (laughs) You're not an AI. You did a great job of like inputting descriptors. But the AI also gives you like options. So if anything, like you, the cover art is edited by you. Mm -hmm. Can't even get into the ethics of AI art. But um, yeah, that's, that's what they're doing. And there's like all these weird like little AI glitches like earrings going into your cheek instead of the back of your ear that kind mm-hmm. of thing mm-hmm. that seems right <laughs> um actually the ethics of artificial intelligence dovetails beautifully with this text true story because it is about uh youths in space and about artificial artificial intelligence system and how to uh work around it through it and with it to make the most of your brief life. Should we read the back of the book? Two boys, alone in space. Sworn enemies sent on the same rescue mission. Ambrose wakes up on the coordinated endeavor with no memory of a launch. There's more that doesn't add up. Evidence indicates strangers have been on board. The ship's operating system is voiced by his mother, and his handsome brooding shipmate has barricaded himself away. But nothing will stop Ambrose from making his mission succeed, not when he's rescuing his own sister. In order to survive the the ship's secrets, Ambrose and Kodiak will need to work together and learn to trust each other, especially once they discover what they are truly up against. Interesting. Very Mm -hmm. evocative. Very evocative. Uh, I would say my, like, one, my single beef patty burger Mm -hmm. with this is sworn enemies. Agreed. (laughs) It's a bit of an overstatement. Um, and, and I think the reason it disappoints me is because I was like very I, I liked the way this book handled that um, political landscape that these two young men find themselves in. Oh, should we try to hold off on spoilers? This is definitely a book that I think could be spoiled for you. Yes, it could absolutely be spoiled for you easily. Let's tread lightly in the early minutes because we don't find out the big spoiler until like literally halfway through the book. Yeah, so uh, we'll, we'll do our best. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll try to put in the episode notes the approximate time that we start spoiling it divulging secrets and we'll try to like note it of course verbally before we get into it but uh, this is not a spoiler so there are in this is like in the year 3000 2431 libby ripped my ebook from my hands this morning so i can't do any confirmations 20, in the year 2431, there are two countries left and one major corporation. And the two countries naturally fall along the communist capitalist lines. One is called the Federation and one is called Democratia. Democratia is the communist one. Obs. And the Federation is the... Capitalist democracy, question mark. <laughs> Q, Yeah. 
and the corporation is the Cusk Corporation. Yep. Sounds like husk, sounds like musk. Sounds like cuck. <laughs> sounds like, yeah. Um, and Ambrose is a son of Cusk. Mm-hmm. He's a prince of Cusk. His mother is a is the like CEO mm-hmm. and is a Cusk. It's very succession-y. So in a way, it's like there's a monarchy thrown mm-hmm. in the mix as well. And she actually has 30 children. Um, and they are all in vitro fertilizations using the sperm of historic figures. And Ambrose's father, air quotes, is Alexander the Great. And he was raised in a Starship Troopers type academy, along with his favorite, most heroic older sister. Who Who is also the only one fathered by Alexander the Great's DNA with him. She went on a mission to Titan which is a moon of, and this is an actual fact, Mm -hmm. Saturn? Correct. In order to try and start a human colony because global warming. Mm -hmm. And the wars between Democrazia and the Federation have made the planet increasingly unlivable. She sends up a rescue signal. Uh, Well, at first they think she's just dead, like Mm -hmm. her landing failed. And then she sends out a rescue signal, and so they mount this rescue mission. Ambrose is not aware that Democrazia is also sending a starship trooper. Mm-hmm. And he discovers that over the course of his mission. And they send same-sex troopers. Mm-hmm. So that there can't be babies in space. No high-risk medical issues. Um, but Ambrose wakes up on this ship to fly to Titan and save his sister by an operating system that has his mother's voice. He can customize the voice to whatever he wants it to be. Um, so he does change it sometimes. But he learns that his main job is just to kind of fix up the ship, do some repairs, um, until his main job becomes rescuing his sister from Titan. Um, but there is a mysterious orange door next to the yellow door that goes to the ship's engine room and that's where kodiak the democratia trooper is if you're picturing a bear you're not too far off i love that in the year 2431 instead of har- like raising a genetically modified human organisms they are just using orphans uh, <laughs> in russia to pardon democratia to uh create astronauts mm-hmm. and they have he has this like really spartan existence and he's super you know it's like all suffice to say it's like every stereotype of a cold war russian soldier or a russian gymnast honestly there's this part where he's taken from the orphanage with his friend at like four years old and they're just like thrown in and they like eat gruel and like they're trained every day and the only love that they get is approval and i was like this feels like the thing that i learned about russian gymnasts in the 80s where it's like they're so small because they've been like malnourished on purpose and they're just like the machine of the sport kodiak is very much like that but then that's also that turns out that's what the american gymnasts were doing too whenever that guy defected he just created a little russian gym in texas and they were all malnourished and 
yeah, awful things happened. Yeah, it turns out that like the propaganda that we tell about others is probably just a little bit projection or a lot of it. Except when it comes to basketball. (laughs) I'm not going to get into that with you. Um, (laughs) When it comes to basketball, the American story is true. It's because they all have corn and whole milk and the love of their fathers. And that's how the dream team came to be. Okay. Uh, Yeah. So it's the Americans and the Russians in space alone. And they've sent teens, teen boys, because the radiation in space is so intense that they have a better chance of living longer with the mutations and cancers that they are likely going to get. So that's, I think, a more detailed summary of where we find the fellas. Um, The other kind of lie is that, or not really lie, but, well, yeah, lie. Well, I hesitate to call it a lie because it isn't literally America versus Russia. But Ambrose is very, the Federation is very... um, Gender fluid, sexuality fluid, um, whereas Democrazia is very rigid in binaries. Yeah, the the Democrazia won't even send women into space to be astronauts. The academy that Kodiak grew up in was just dudes. Um, but they also define their attraction in a binary way and that Ambrose finds uh, boring. And quaint supposedly as they get to know each other discover that they're matched because kodiak is very good at manual mechanic programming and ambrose is really good at computer programming which also feels like (laughs) like for there's a lot of binary going on here even outside of democrazia yes like they they can't uh they don't really have things in common they only have compliments to one another Mm -hmm. besides the fact that they sometimes they feel lonely because of their upbringing yeah it's weird how this uh story really was interested in like gender fluidity and like the ambrose's attraction doesn't fall along um a gender binary line but like the way in which everything else is defined, as you said, is like very binary. Like there's this part where um, Ambrose invites Kodiak over to watch a movie and Kodiak's never seen a movie before. Like they didn't do that in his like orphanage hellscape. And he like immediately after watching it, he's like, can we watch it again? And Ambrose is both like pities that upbringing and is also like oh man I wish I'd brought better movies and it's like that's just it's like such a story of like Kodiak's orphaned and deprived and Ambrose grew up with all of this privilege and like Kodiak had to literally break his best friend's arm in a pool to get sent on the next part of his training and like all Ambrose had to do is pass a bunch of tests and Kodiak's afraid that he's not smart because he doesn't read good or write essays good (laughs) (laughs) and Ambrose doesn't know how to like dismantle a small engine and it's just like (laughs) yeah it it absolutely is. Like, I, I think it's interesting how we have a, all of this language to talk about being non-binary in terms of gender, but, like, we don't really have the capacity to understand, like, binaries in, gen- in general. 
And it's so complex, right? Being at this like transition point. And so it's mm-hmm. interesting to read about a futurity that sort of remains in that stasis. In that, in that yeah, in that stasis, in that place of flux. Not that either of these characters are very interested in anything particularly feminine. It's a pretty mm-hmm. masculine space. Um, mm-hmm. The closest it gets to feminine is the OS in the mother's voice, which has like Oedipal overtones. And then, like, the next closest is, like, the ambiguity, right? Or the um, androgyny that uh, Ambrose likes in his porn. Tell me about the Oedipal overtones you picked up from the OS mother. So. <laughs> because because having a mother is not Oedipal. No, having a mother isn't Oedipal. Uh, Wanting to pork that mother is Oedipal. Sure. And I think the way in which the need demon of Ambrose functions with the OS, who has the voice of his mother and is like constantly in comparison to IRL mom or Earth mom, it's like OS is often like more tender and sweeter. And there are moments where like, Ambrose has to catch himself about, like, not wanting to, like, please OS in the first part and, like, not wanting to, like, be too thrown by OS's approval or non-approval about the task that he's maintaining. And there, there's, like, a latent thing inside of him that recognizes that OS is not his mother because oftentimes it's kinder. And, like, that slippage between, like... Earth mom, computer mom, and then using computer mom to like sexually tease Kodiak. (laughs) And then also wanting space mom to like comfort and explain things and like tell him he's doing a good job. It's not just Oedipal. How about that? Um, I don't think he ever has. I So the sexual teasing part I can think of maybe is whenever he changes the OS's voice, but then it's no longer his mom. Mom. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what's the what's the Oedipal hinge point there? Like what's the point at which you were like, oh, this is kind of I think it's just every time the OS says like, oh you're doing a good job or like purrs or does something like that. Like just the way that he interacts with the OS in the first half. And then it changes. Can can you tell me about how that's um, how he sexualizes the OS or sexualizes himself for the OS? I don't think it. It's not that explicit, right? It's um, it's it's t- more tender than sexual, and it's. I think that's true. So, when we first meet the OS, he corrects it whenever it uses. Like, kind of like a hokey saying. He says, my mother would never say that. And the OS says, okay, I'll I'll keep that information in mind and not do it again. And then he is kind of like, I mean, you could, you know, that's no big deal. You could, <laughs> you could be hokier. You could be nicer. Yeah, mom, not mom. Because his mother is a very distant, demanding. Cold. Not a very motherly mother. Right. Not nurturing, I guess. No. And I think he's subtly trying to create more of a mom Mm -hmm. out of OS. 
except when he briefly has a take on the voice of a someone in a boy band. Yeah, the I mean the relationship is like it's very intimate. It's more intimate than a mother and a child and it like it obviously has to be because it's like um their both of their existences depend on it. But just stuff like, I use a degree of specificity a human would likely choose in this situation. A more precise estimated length of time is 0.523. Thank you. That's better. This is all that's separating us from annihilation, I say, from dying in the void. Please avoid your nihilistic tendencies in your personality file. And us is an appropriate pronoun in this situation. I'd survive a whole rupture. OS, that was harsh, I say, especially in my mother's voice. (laughs) Callousness is her strong suit, though she would name it as strength. It's just, like, the ways in which they begin to interact with one another. Like, um, as much as Ambrose has to, like, learn how to dance around Kodiak, Kodiak's insecurities, Kodiak's uh, upbringing, Kodiak's baggage, he also has to interact with the OS, which is also trying to interact and dance around his insecurities, his what the OS knows about his personality files. And so, like, the way in which they, like, enter into attention together at the very beginning where they're trying to help each other understand what's happening. But OS holds way more of the cards because Ambrose wakes up uh, not knowing, not remembering the launch and not knowing that Kodiak's even on board. So there's like this very, it feels really intimate because it's in his mother's voice and he's constantly reminding himself in his own internality, not mom. Like, don't seek that approval, doesn't matter. And so he's correcting OS in the way that he wants to be spoken to all the while fighting his own internality about like wanting OS to be even nicer. And then OS is like also doing this like gas clutch, gas clutch. Um, And I, I thought that was a really interesting method of using both the space, but also to explain a lot about Ambrose before we even meet Kodiak. Like, this is such a tight love story, if we want to call it that. Um, it's like so tight as to be microscopic, but it has a very, very important, impactful third character in OS. Yeah. What's interesting also about OS, right, is that we just have these three characters, we have these romantic elements. We're never in Kodiak's perspective, though. Never. And so we never experience what his relationship would be like with OS, which seems, you know, it seems like it would be ripe, right? Like an orphan with like a middle-aged woman's voice coming through and telling him what to do, telling him he's doing a good job. Yeah. Like what that experience would be like for Kodiak. But they seem to, in spite of that, they seem to come to feel suspicious of OS. Mm-hmm of a kind at the same time because of that gas clutch thing. And Ambrose almost immediately tests um, the ship mm-hmm. when he wakes up to determine what's actually going on. Kodiak does not test the ship so much as he tests Ambrose, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that would speak to Kodiak's upbringing, right? He's inherently more trustful of an institution as represented by an operating system than he would be of Ambrose, fellow fellow boy space cadet. Right, but space cadet of the enemy. But also, 
he wasn't particularly want to trust his classmates. They were always pitted against one another. For sure. Which that doesn't sound very communisty. No, it doesn't. Doesn't. No, it's almost like <laughs> that's not what it was. Um, yeah, I think it's really interesting. I think it's a good way to say it where it's like Ambrose is more inclined to trust Kodiak than he is the operating system and Kodiak's more inclined to trust the system than Ambrose. And then Ambrose has to win them both over. He's got to win the OS in a way that he can function so it doesn't feel weird to him all the time. And he has to win over his hot shipmate. And the way that he does it is with flirtation and bags of processed manicotti. Can I? Okay. This is, this is uh, jumping the gun a little bit. Okay. But my weirdest part is not spoilery. Okay. And so would it be okay if we talked about my weirdest part? Let's do it. I feel like it's it. a good segue. Um, okay, so my weirdest part is like an overarching weirdest part that just kind of came into my consciousness as I was reading. The, this, why, this is a young adult romance. The publisher mm-hmm. recommends it for ages 13 to 17. Uh, I'm very nearly double that. Mm-hmm. And... There is definitely sexuality. There's not, like, on-the-page sex. We do get, like, a post-coital scene where they talk explicitly about the fact that they just had anal sex and how their future sex is going to go. They talk about masturbation. Like, it's not all just suggestions and knee touches and tender kisses. Mm -hmm. And it's happening between two underage individuals. Mm-hmm. For the consumption of other underage individuals, but they didn't ask to see my ID when I checked this out from Libby. And so I, an adult person, am reading what is intentionally a sexually titillating scene between two young people. Mm-hmm. That's weird. That's a weird experience to come into consciousness of. I mean, sure. I don't find their 17 any weirder than like a Johanna Lindsay's heroine 17. Yeah, that's a good point. I would say there is something about the fact that I don't think this was intended for, like, since it's not intended for adult consumption, that feels, you know, Joanna Lindsay, you can say very much, like, is of her time. Sure. And a lot of those romance novels are, and they, but they were written explicitly for adults. Sure. (laughs) Not just, like, legal adults, but, like. Adult adults. Adult, like, frontal lobe fully developed adults. To consume. I mean, as a consumer of YA reading, like, this also doesn't strike me any differently than, like, the way that I gobbled up Hunger Games. Like, I was an adult. Maybe my frontal lobe wasn't fully developed the first time. Was I under the age of 25 when Hunger Games came out? I don't know. But I was definitely over the age of 18. I've, like, I read YA as an adult because I I enjoy what YA allows itself to do that adult novels, I feel or novels written for adults feel a little more, um, let's say, uh, self-conscious of doing. I think there's an earnestness to YA that, like, uh, dovetails with romance, which is why I think there's, like, a there's a Venn diagram here mm. of both readership, cover arts, and I don't think it's uncommon for YA to spring into romance and vice versa. I think there's, I think there's space here because of the earnestness crossover. And the other thing I would say about this, like, I totally get why 
you think it's weird. And like the other thing about it is I think there's just like a lot of teens in my media consumption. Like I only just got into yellow jackets and like half of that is about teens like surviving in a Lord of the Flies situation. Um, And that's for adults. Mm. People would say if you're between 13 and 17, you should not watch Yellow Jackets. Certainly 13. Whereas like with this book, they're like, you should only read it if you're 13 to 17. I don't think you should only read it if you're 13 to 17. No, but that's like the recommendation, right? Sure. That's the publisher's official recommendation. And I think the other thing, like talking about Hunger Games, like talking about YA generally... I think it's fine for adults to read YA. I think what I found difficult about this book is that it has those explicit sexual conversations, which brings sexuality for these young people into a very real existence, not an imagined existence, but an actual physical reality. They have sex Mm -hmm. as 17-year-olds. And further, the scenes are meant to be titillating, right? Like you Mm -hmm. as a reader are, you know, hopefully identifying with the characters and you're having a titillating experience hearing about, reading about it or whatever. And so I think the thing that's difficult is like this is, as someone in my 30s, I was reading a sexual scene between 17-year-olds that was meant to be sexually interesting Right. It would also be true if I was 14 and reading this book, but I'm not Mm -hmm. like we talked about when we did the Pride and Prejudice retelling. That was like a YA space book. We said, okay, well, we can't really say sexiest part because nothing sexy happens in those books. So we said like most butterflies part. Yeah. Those books were very tame in comparison to this one. Yeah. And this one is not that. Now, I don't think that like books that contain sexuality between teens shouldn't exist especially for a teen audience because sexuality between teens exists and is part of human development it's just a very it was like a very eerie ethical quandary that I hadn't yet encountered and I thought like you know there I've heard discourse around like what are the ethics of adults consuming young adult romance specifically because there, are, there is a trend of grown people getting character crushes, book crushes on children. And that's... I've never heard of that. I've, I've definitely been in forums where it's like adults who also like YA, but I haven't heard about adults discussing their YA book crushes. Like in the same way that people have like a book crush on like... Fitzwilliam Darcy. Yeah. The thing is, is like the books are meant, are built, right? For you to get a crush on the main character because it's a romance. That's part of its functionality. Sure. And so this kind of, I, that always seemed like this really abstracted conversation to me because I don't read a lot of YA. The YA I have read and enjoyed, I've never felt like there was any kind of explicit sexuality going on that would I think that has challenged this worldview for me Hmm. but I did realize like I was like oh man like I was highlighting in my book and I was like I think this could be the sexiest part and then I was like whoa but this is actually sex and these are actually 17 year olds and like what is the ethic around this because I think for me to talk about it even 
And further, like, you know, for people to, like, what, like, there is discourse. I haven't related to it. Now I understand the discourse, why it exists, how it exists. Like, it all just kind of locked in for me. And it locked in for me in a very, like, self-confrontational way. Yeah, I mean, this isn't the first explicit YA sex scene I've read. And I, I, I've never thought about it in those terms. I think... You've never thought it... Like, in the terms of... I am an adult human getting titillated by the idea of youth. Like, it just... That... In some ways, like, this conversation that you and I are having, I think, is... It's weird because I think the other version of this is, like... So there's one version of this conversation that seems to me that would go something like, well, it's not for you, so you shouldn't consume it. And like in the same way that like you and I would not watch anything with like underage people like uh, who can't give consent. Like that's not it's not. That's wrong. (laughs) And like this, I, I, I get the sense that you're like having a quandary about this in a similar way, even though these are fictitious characters. And like, it's good that there is consenting sexuality explicitly on the page for young people to consume. Um, But it seems to me that like, if you turn this dial just a little bit further, like people are doing in Texas and Florida, this is easily a book that could get banned because if it's not okay for you and I to read semi-sexually explicit stuff about consenting teens, then it's probably not okay for teens. Like, I see how this dial could get turned that way. So there are a couple things I want to just call out. I'm not saying, like, it's just the reading of it. I think it's the fact that this is meant because of its romantic elements. I think it's important that this book is is intentionally relaying, like, something that's meant to be a turn-on, but not to me, right? The age group, they have, like, a publication, like, recommended reading age group. I think it's important that it's not just talking about sexuality. It's talking about sexuality with the intent to be erotic. Yeah, I think erotic's a better term here than titillating because I, like, it is erotic. I didn't find myself, like, turned on by the sex. And the other thing is, like, there's a there's a specific pedagogy that comes along with their postcoital scene that like I also didn't understand is like for me but found like it would have been as instructive as like the 17 magazines like so you're curious about anal sex here's what you need to know um and I and I respect that YA does that and like I think it's nice like there are other there's a there's a YA book that called The Graceling that has a similar postcoital scene about like checking in with your partner to make sure that like, you know, like I had a really good time. Like, how are you feeling? Like the emotions that come up during sex. And for someone who has had sex now for like a very long time, <laughs> um, it's like it's like those things that I think are useful to have demonstrated in a pedagogy in a safe pedagogical sense in like a book like this Mm -hmm. and like the idea that there is utility for young people here there's utility for young people and like you know if we're being honest I'm sure there's like utility for folks of various ages here and like you know there's like some terminology stuff going on and I think like the idea that like the, the ethics around an adult human 
older than the age of 13 to 17 writing about youths falling in love. Like that's, I felt like this book treated that with the eroticism and respect that it deserved. And it was clear where the lines of consent and flirtation were. And like, I felt like in those ways, this text is doing all the stuff right. And while I can see some concern, it's also like I I genuinely believe that a book like this needs to be out there and like should be out there. And I I mean, I had terrible sex ed because I grew up in rural Wisconsin, mm-hmm. but like I know <laughs> nice sex ed teachers who are my age who are going into high schools and middle schools talking about sex ed. And it's like the ethics of that don't seem altogether that different. Although, like, what you're saying is, like, sex ed isn't meant to be erotic, and this is. And sex ed would... And, like, the other thing is, like, you're teaching... To to relate it more to my question is, like, it's like going into a high school to teach young people sex ed with the intention of the young people finding it erotic <laughs> and fun. But then also there's a 32-year-old in the room with the 17-year-old who's also getting turned on. The, the writing, I think I'm very, you know, I think you're right. It's good that it exists for 17-year-olds, mm-hmm. right? My quandary is the adults who enter this space and mm-hmm. then are also turned on. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I guess I'm just not worried about the adults who would choose to pick this up. And this, maybe I should be. But, like, I, and, like, getting turned on is, like, also, s- <sighs> Yeah. I don't know. I mean, like, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know. It just, it just seems like the other side of that coin of A Court of Thorn and Roses should not have been marketed as YA. But it was. Yeah. But that first book also, it doesn't have explicit sex, right? It just That's has, true, but it just has, like, massive amounts of violence. <laughs> but also, like, the second book had a lot of, I think – Judging by the full cover set that came out originally, I feel like all of the books were marketed for YA. Mm-hmm. Like, even, like, the complex sexual politics of that text, right? hmm <laughs> It doesn't seem like... Especially in the second one, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't seem like the best recommended reading for, like, a, a super young person, right? Of, of course, sure. all young people are different. But I, I think, like, this feels like the other side of that. And, you know, you, I think you, you clearly demonstrated you felt kind of icked out by the idea of grown women having book boyfriends who are underage, right, from YA novels. Like, that seems weird. It seems weird. I think ick is too strong a term for what I feel for it. Because, like, I mean, I was in college when Twilight hit and, like, the moms were as obsessed as their 14-year-olds. That doesn't give you the ick, though. I don't know if it does or not. Like, in, certainly at the time, it didn't. And, like, in retrospect, maybe. I'd have to think more about it and, like, how it functioned. But then, like, my very first, like, my very <laughs> my very first thought in my own argument is, like, Edward's not really 17, right? He's a vampire. <laughs> like, <laughs> but he's 17 forever. Like, I'm already fighting it. You're already rationalizing it. No, yeah. exactly. So, like, I, like, without having thought of this further, like, I think there there is something here along, like, I would like to put this on a spectrum rather than a binary of, like, titillation, <laughs> eroticism, and, like, what it, what those things are doing and how they're functioning. Because, mm-hmm. like, I was 
I wasn't turned on by the sex. The parts that I found sexiest in this text were definitely like playing with zippers and like talking about watching. But like maybe that's weird and I should think about that more. Yeah. But to the extent like that this book isn't for me or that like I'm not particularly interested in like a 17-year-old heroine in a Johanna Lindsay or a Kathleen Woodowis, like I'm still on I'm still on this train for the adventure. And so like the relative ages of these characters didn't throw up ick for me. I would say it's not an overall issue, right? Like I'm not mm-hmm. having like an overall problem with reading this book. I'm not having an overall problem with people reading about older people reading about younger characters. I am very specifically weird feeling weird around adults, full-grown adults reading intentionally and titillating erotic turn-on sexual content featuring underage people, children. So like I mean, is that because like I'm there's so many YA books that I think adults should read. Like The Hate You Give comes up and like I don't remember there being an explicit sex scene in that, but right, there's so definitely not, like that wouldn't be a part of this. Sure, but there are definitely scenes that are meant to be more erotic than others. Like she's got a boyfriend that they have several like bedroom scenes of. And so like I think we've just now entered a time where YA texts are going to have sex scenes. And so then like the like the thing here is like adults shouldn't be reading them. That's what I'm wondering. I think like is or maybe not even like should we be talking about them? Is this even, you know, if it's not for us, right? Like and also us specifically like we're coming at this from a romance angle, right? Mm-hmm. So that titillating stuff, that erotic stuff, that romantic stuff is especially mm-hmm. central. Mm-hmm. to how we approach a text, right? And mm-hmm. I think a lot of people, and, you know, speaking about, like, YA romance specifically, because I think The Hate You Give, right, is not marketed mm-hmm. as a romance. No, it's not. But if I'm an adult and I'm going to the bookstore and I'm like, do you know what I would like? I would like a YA romance. Mm-hmm. Like, what does that entail? What does that indicate? And what are the ethics around that? Like, I specifically want to read a book from the perspective of a young person falling in love with, you know, hopefully a fellow young person. That's my tipple. That's what I'm interested in. And then developing, you know, the paratextual relationship of, like, this is my all-time favorite male main character. He's 17, an orphan. Like, you know, like... These are kind of, they don't, I mean, like, inevitability is way too big of a description for that happening, but that does feel like a, perhaps a natural consequence of, of adults consuming YA. And, like, it's just a weird, it's just weird. It's a weird part. <laughs> like, what's your weirdest part? I mean, I thought the Cold War stuff. <laughs> I was like, we can't. Do better in the year 2341. <laughs> 2431, we're still, it's still communism versus Still cap- Russia and the Americans. Yeah, which isn't even communism versus capitalism. It's just, it's like the dichotomy of East versus West. Yeah, but not even like, you know, it's like a, a very strange 
white adjacent west or east versus west, right? It's like still nobody here is like that racially diverse. <laughs> uh, didn't seem like, I mean, I guess Democratia was a little more racially diverse than what we knew of Federation, but we also don't spend a lot of time on those worlds. It's not, this book isn't that interested in that world building, which is maybe why it feels, the sketching feels uh, lightly drawn. The sketching feels lightly drawn. I do think like, you know, I think it speaks to the everyday lived experience of being like a human under politics that when you sit down to world build in the future, you're like, okay, here's what I'm going to do. Just two countries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, two and superpowers. it's just going to be Cold War. Because like your everyday lived experience of politics, even under the Cold War, I mean, I think under the Cold War, you would have been a lot more aware of it. But like to position yourself constantly in opposition to an imagined other mm-hmm. who is defined by their nationality is pretty is pretty wild. <laughs> and to like draw specifically on the like cuz like I don't know though, right? Like maybe you set it up as the Cold War then you're like, "Okay, I'm going to change the names of the two countries." Mhm. And then I'm going to change their values. But insofar as I can conceptualize values, I feel like the most I would do is just flip them. <laughs> like, yeah. to me, there's like only like the collective versus the individual. There is only like... The traditionalist versus like the new wave. Right. Like I wouldn't even be able to... Like what What if like traditionalism was the new wave? But then I'm still like <laughs> conforming to those two like binaries. And like... I don't know, maybe like that always existed and the Cold War just like exploited it or maybe that is like a result of the Cold War. We just like lost to think about broader futures, infinite possibilities rather than just oppositional. Because it does feel like we think a lot about oppositional, right? Like opposition to the past, opposition to what our mom told us to do. Like identity formation seems very oppositional. Do you think there's a world where it's not? Yeah, I think that has to do with something that feels like momentum, where it's like you have to be in opposition or antagonism to something to have propellant. Oh, mm-hmm. To have like, yeah. You got to kick off of the side of the pool. Yeah, exactly. And like whether or not you're moving forward or backward, right? And I think that's like why we're caught in a moment of backlash where it's like, boy, howdy, I don't know how we fucking got here where a bunch of people are fucking trad wifing and saying that, like, the same things that Phyllis Schlafly said in 1983 and they're saying it fucking straight-faced and totally in earnest. And I'm like, yeah. how, did, how did we get here? And it's like, oh, that's the backlash to, like, I'm with her and, like, the future is female. And it's like, that sucks. One of the things I find especially disturbing about the, like, uh, homesteader to trad wife pipeline is that I think a lot of these people identify themselves as feminists and would be like, I read Gloria Steinem, right? But it's like the actual lived, like there's theory and then there's the actual lived experience. And if something feels good and makes you feel right and makes you feel like you can, you know, harmonize any kind of tunes together that you need to, to like make yourself feel okay yeah that's true that's what I think is so disquieting to me 
<laughs> well, we've kind of been dancing around whether or not we think this is a romance. Can we talk about spoilers? Yes. Okay, because I, I want to talk about, I need to talk about spoilers to talk about whether or not this is a romance. Yes. So, first of all, I did not see it coming. The fact that no. they are clones mm-hmm. in Ziploc baggies just getting rolled mm-hmm. out by the OS. So, humans needed to um, colonize space before they had light speed travel. Or, not light speed. Wait, no, we have speed of sound. We don't have speed of light. Yeah, and they don't in this world either. Earth is dying. The sister was a ruse. They're not going to Titan. They just needed 24 clones to get them to the other side of the Milky Way to colonize. Which takes about 30,000 years. To colonize a planet. And so the OS wakes up a pair of clones every time it has maintenance that it can't perform on itself. And every time it like re-ups the oxygen to the right level. So clones are waking up every like six to eight thousand years to do the maintenance that they're supposed to do one to two years of maintenance and then they get offed by the ship the os is killing them which is pretty pretty gruesome some of them are pretty heinous (laughs) some of yeah the the os isn't gentle in a lot of it um and it's it gets pretty intense. And so the clones start trying to find ways to communicate with one another without the ship's knowledge so that that information can't be destroyed. Intergenerational clones are trying to communicate with each other, not just Kodiak and Ambrose. They're hiding messages for their future clones after they expect to have been killed by the OS. And the book operates in sections that deal with batches of clones. Sometimes you'll skip over, like it won't be one, t- like... It won't just be generation to generation. It'll be like five clones later. You're back and you discover that they have written, they have carved minuscule text into the ship. The ship just gets more and more dilapidated as these two Mm -hmm. 17-year-old boys intentionally destroy the ship more and more. So that they can have a space where the OS can't see them or hear them so that they can write their messages and figure out what's going on. Because every time that they wake up, they're given the mission, you're going to Titan to save Minerva and then go back to Earth. And that like just is less and less true and more, and it's more easily identifiable as an untruth yeah. uh, the faster they wake up. Yeah. They embed, Ambrose embeds video messages to himself in the softcore pornography, not even softcore pornography, the vaguely titillating videos that they're allowed to have in lieu of pornography. He knows exactly which video he's going to look up, which is of a Democratian camping person camping by themselves. Yeah, just like swimming in a river. Yeah, (laughs) like classic, like pre-code Eastern European import. Runner up for weirdest part is when sci-fi refuses to call something what it is. So they don't call them like movies or films. They call them reels. Mm -hmm. And it's like, listen, this is the year 2431. This is, you know, 400 years in the future from where I am now. We still haven't come up with a new word for movies or films. I think we can just safely assume they're going to keep that word going. <laughs> That's a good point. Also, they wouldn't call it like the, like the real comes from like the real tape literally spinning and like it had been 500 years since that had happened. Oh my God. What if it's from Instagram reels? Like Instagram reels have just gotten longer and longer until they are movies. That's so funny. But he like watches the 1940s something mummy. So yeah, he watches an old mummy, <laughs> like an, which I, of course, loved. Yeah. Anyways, runner up for weirdest part. It's like in fantasy novels when they won't just say birthday. Yeah. 
It's like it's a perfect name for what it is. It's the day you were birthed. I don't. Yeah, why we have to call it a name day or whatever. Yeah, so the clones are trying to like figure this out, and then they they do a bunch of amazing things to get this truth in and old fashioned stuff like an radio build a radio and they upload. OS Prime so that they have an OS system that can't lie to them. Uh, different from the OS, they like try to like manually pilot the ship off course to a different planet. And finally, they take this radical action because they realize how necessary they are to the OS and to the mission itself. Uh, they kill all of the spare clones except for one pair. And then they're like, we're going to live out our lives and then you're going to live out your lives and wherever you are, that's what you get. And like, this is the last possible moment. OS is going to wake you up at the last possible moment because there are no more spares. And and we're going to be allowed, we don't. We can live past our, our tasks. Yeah, and they like in that version, because of the radiation, they only they they get to sub 40, but they get to 37 and 39. And it's like, and it gets really epistolatory at the end, which is yeah, really beautiful. It's all Ambrose's letters to future Ambrose. Yeah, and like all about like the way in which like long term love sucks and his work, <laughs> but it was also like you have to make space for it. Like that stuff is just. It was a meditation, which was very strange. Like, it becomes really, really meditative in the end. As one would at the end of your life. But also, like, as you're contemplating, like, the literal murder of these, like, clone bags. So this is the thing, right? These letters, these, like, Ambrose, from what we get of Ambrose's, the various Ambrose's letters to future Ambrose's, is that falling in love with Kodiak is the most important thing. Now, there is a round of clones where it doesn't happen because Kodiak goes into existential crisis and (laughs) kills everyone. (laughs) Everyone. There's two of them. (laughs) He he does, and he, like, destroys all of the... They have, like... sophisticated equipment to like figure out the lies and the spacesuits and like he destroys the spacesuits so that future they only have one spacesuit now which is going to be a safety issue long term they really fuck shit up they make things almost unlivable for their future selves repeatedly because of their determination to get one over on the machine to beat the mm-hmm. institution which the house is always going to win and in their, I think, to to be individuals, right? Like, they are, as clones of human beings, incapable, I think, of truly understanding themselves as infinite or, or as finite, I should say. And so the fact that they <laughs> literally just, like, burst into existence and burst out is... irreconcilable to them. I think they can't wrestle with being infinite or finite. And the thing that gives them meaning, you know, eventually like a round of Ambrose's figures out what path they're on and what the plan is on his own. Because even the OS doesn't know what the plan is. He finds it out on his own. Even with that context, that Ambrose is still like the thing that gives that Ambrose's life meaning is falling in love. With Kodiak. With Kodiak. Now, here's the issue, right? 
you do get a happily ever after, an incredibly stressful one that I hope I never have to revisit. Space freaks me out. Um, 30,000 years freaks me out. I do appreciate the like manualness of this sci-fi. I think it does a great job of like break, like you start off in this very Jetsons, clean, crisp uh, version of sci-fi and then it breaks down. To where at the end, the two fucking goobers of predecessor Kodiak and Ambrose brought in a meteor and they saw moss on it. And they were like, oh yep. my God, life, right? Like this meteor is sustaining life. We're going to sustain life. Cut forward to the last set. This moss has been growing for thousands of years, has now taken over the ship, made the oxygen level way too high. <laughs> So and thus, incredibly flammable and they have to enter atmosphere. Yeah, like, you know, like, that's the stuff. Like, they're just so excited to, like, share this thing that they are incapable of thinking of, like, a futurity. And so mm-hmm. in that way, I think it really talks about how love gives you this feeling of importance and infinite, gives you this idea of meaning. But I think at every turn, the book is also kind of, like, shrugging that, like, comfy sweater off of its shoulder because they are just like fucking it up now as a human being i find that very worthwhile as someone who's not going to survive thirty thousand years on my best day on a spaceship to the outer reaches of the milky way i'm like yeah you should i don't know what that says about me but i'm like yeah you absolutely should try to like it's more important that you personally leave your mark I guess that's the Federation in me. Or that's the Kodiak, right? Because, like, that's the conclusion that Ambrose comes to is that, like, his, like, they kill the, all the other clones so that they can live out their lives and they leave the last set to, like, live out their potential lives. It's, like, better to just kill the ones in between and, like, then have, like, this weird sort of futurity baton passing so that, like, the OS isn't just, like, using the clones as tools right like then there's like a the conversation in here about like the ethics of like clones themselves and like what people are for yeah um i thought that was really interesting yeah what are humans for but also like what kinds of choices can you make for someone else like the the clones would have been conscious if they'd been allowed but like what kind of a life is it just to be in service of the os and like fascinating at this book was like especially the latter half where you're just like going through the clones like asks a lot of very interesting sci-fi questions very interesting sci-fi questions i would say love romantic love is a part of those questions yep but i don't think it is the question i don't yeah it it is weird because it's the central orbit, but it doesn't feel like the central question. And there are entire storylines that go without them falling in love with each other and just kind of yeah. being baffled by the idea that they would. Yeah. And you also ponder, because it turns out you are not landing on the first set of Mm-mm. clones when we first meet. So it's like, did those previous clones, or do we just pick up on the first set that like looks Fell longingly in into one another's eyes? I don't know. You know, it's it's so it's hard, you know, to say, is this a sci-fi romance or is this a romantic sci-fi? I think it's a romantic sci-fi. Where do you land? Because it's just the two of them and the way that like they function together. I have to say, especially once we get past the part where Kodiak 
kills Ambrose with a wrench. Once we get past that, it becomes a romance. <laughs> yeah. So that's like up until then. That's like two thirds of the way or three. Yeah. yeah after that, after, when we get into the epistolatory part, where it's like he talks about um, they're having birthday celebrations for each other. Um, there is no mission control anymore. There is just you. No one will know if you succeed or fail. No one will notice your landing day. This lifetime is yours to make of it what you will. Love. It's important to note that planet Earth did go into a nuclear warfare a couple thousand years after they left and then resolved it. They started to pick up the pieces and then were hit by an asteroid that destroyed everything, <laughs> which just goes to show that reminds me of like, the Game of Thrones storyline as well as our current timeline where it's we're all fixated on these like political issues and in fact it is the planet itself that will kill us. Like yeah. uh nature is coming for us. Um but I think it, one of the key genre markers I think for me of romance is that the love story is the central storyline. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this one the romance as central storyline is a red herring in the beginning and not Mm -hmm. and never actually becomes the central storyline i think their motivations are not their love i think like their central motivation is not their love for each other but rather their need for humanity and existence and love is a way that they can create and assure that for one another for sure like there's no there's there's no one else here and there's no pretending that there's anyone else here. There's like no Paris or London or like ton to retreat to. So it's like you're either going to fall in love with him or you're, you're going to like you're eventually you just will. There's no one else to like hug and smooch and you're going to need to hug and smooch. You think and that's so like, true? I, they're they're inev- like they have there's they're always inevitable. a choice. You can just be friends. You can just be colleagues. Don't, you don't have to fall I don't, in love. I don't think that's true, especially with just you, the OS, and the rover, which is also OS, but, like, is somehow animalistic, which is really funny. It's not like you would be alone. It's just you wouldn't be, like, part romantically partnered with the other person. I, I don't think that. I don't I don't think so. Not in in the conception if of this text. If Isabel's on I don't the think spaceship, that's... we're falling in love. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's true. <laughs> just give it some time. Hopefully, they, we got a lot of clone packets to get through because you're going to end up loving me. <laughs> But I agree. I think for that reason, like, the romance isn't central yeah. and that since there are no other choices, like, it can't function that way. Like, and it, and then it also began to feel like a meditation on love, capital L, rather than, like, love between two people as relational. It, like, felt like capital H humanity, capital H love. This is what it means to truly uh, yeah. live. They even get a yeah. baby at the end. They do in a in a little generational pod. At first, I was like, "The new planet is their baby," and then it's like, "No, the actual baby is their baby." Yeah. (laughs) Never mind. Also, like, I'm glad we ended when we did because, like, how many little fetuses did they have? Like thirty. Thirty thousand. Of that, I think like they're gonna have to stagger those out to keep the genetic. Yeah, they talk about that. They talk about how they are going to have to do that. And I think that's just begging for a Warren Jeffs situation. (laughs) So I'm glad we ended when we... Okay, what was your uh, dreamiest part? 
What part did you enjoy the most about the non-central romance? The non-central romance when Ambrose is just like fucking around flirting in the first part with Kodiak and he's like, you want to come over for dinner? And he's like, you know, he like slicks his hair back and he's like, you know, like gets the manicotti already and like makes little tea and he's like playing with his little jumpsuit zipper because he's so excited that his like, you know, date is coming over. I loved that stuff. I love that stuff always. I think it's so fun to remember and think about for me personally, but then also like the character, like I love it when competent characters get goofy and then like tell on themselves in that way. And they're like competence porn breaks. Yeah. I would say likewise, I I really enjoy, I always say if I had a selfish time machine, I would go back and, and fall in love again, which is one of the pleasures of this book is getting to read the same people fall in love in different ways over and over again. And it always is a, it always tickled me. One of my favorite times was when Kodiak first got the radio working and they lay back and listen to music on their headphones. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that stands out in my mind. I think it's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a delight in that way. Ethical quandaries, personal ethical quandaries aside. <laughs> so, womance or no man's? It's a romance for me. I got super lost in these two beautiful space fairs and their strange love affair. I thought the text itself was deeply disturbing and uh, very surprising. I didn't anticipate any of the clone regenerations. Um, The OS went from interesting to terrifying to interesting to then like reclaimed and forgiven in the end which was an amazing turnabout that i did not see coming see i would say not forgiven you have like talk about not having a choice like they literally <laughs> yeah, could like, not they exist literally, yeah you know, and it turn- can't run the generation pod without os <laughs> yeah and like the os is a tool so i think it's like understanding the clones as tools the humans as tools seems inevitable right because your worldview is your existence. Yeah, for sure. But like AI is like as a tool, but it is, but it's also like, it's not an artificial intelligence. Like it is adaptable. It's learning. Like it is as much a tool as the clones. And it is like, it's like ethic, like we, like you have to understand OS's capacity as an intelligent actor with agency as well and the fact that it is like an antagonist is really interesting to me you think of it as having agency absolutely it's like making massive choices all the time and like taking choices away but they're all based on its coding that was set up by the the cusk corporation Right. And it's adapting and it's like constantly revisiting. Like it can't undo its own code, but it is making different kinds of code. And then it starts creating code that's hard for Ambrose to break into. Like, so you, do, the, do you think the AI would have been capable of making a decision to not kill the clones if it wasn't backed into a corner? I think it always was going to make that decision because it was the most efficient. Like it wasn't thinking along compassion lines. Like no one had uploaded ethics into it. So it's like got those hard limits. That's why it's Kodiak had those hard limits too. The Kodiak doesn't. Kodiak's a human being. 
Kodiak could I fall mean, in love. Kodiak could commit murder. Like, that's the thing. Kodiak and Ambrose both have that, like, chaos factor. You always knew that, like, unless they created, like, conditions where there was no other, like, option, the OS was going to kill them. The OS was never capable of learning compassion or falling in love or anything like that. The OS is a tool. And so, yeah, I think, like... That, I mean, that was my perspective. <laughs> I think, I don't think OS would have made different choices, but I think like OS was definitely an actor with agency and was like exerting itself in interesting ways. And like the way in which they all exerted around, like OS was an interesting third character to me. I think, it, yeah, it's an interesting third character, but you know, I don't, it's not like 2001 A Space Odyssey. It's not like the OS was ever going to decide that, like, its existence mattered in the same way that the clones decide that their existence matters and tries to create meaning. The OS was never like, what is my purpose? The OS was always like, this is my purpose. It doesn't matter what the larger plan is, nothing like that. I'm always going to follow this. I'm on rails. Like, it's literally, (laughs) it's little rover is literally on rails, like its existence. And I think maybe it served as like a foil to what Ambrose and Kodiak were doing. So forgiveness sounds like, well, I don't think they had a choice, but. I don't think they had a choice in loving each other, so. <laughs> you don't think people have a choice in that either. Um, all right. So it'll, it'll be, a, I, you know, it's not a romance, so I hesitate to say it's a womance. I did enjoy it a lot. I also wouldn't call it a nomance because I would not recommend it, but it's certainly not a romance. <laughs> so not a romance? Oh, it's, I, I guess I'll go, I, I feel, I feel it's more true that it's a romance. Hmm. It's a romance, but not a romance. Right. Okay. I think I've said that in the past as well. I think you said that about the Pisces. I think I said that about Bear. Yeah, that's right. With that, loosen your stays. But never your principles. Wooly guacamole, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance. Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan. And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music by Nick Gravelin. And our webmistress is Jane Bonsack. They're the best. You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. Or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at womance and on Twitter where we are at mans underscore woe. Or you can find more episodes and content at womancepodcast.com. If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Womance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time.